Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. Today's podcast was recorded on January 9th at around 3pm uh, London time. So obviously if anything has changed in the time since recording we were unable to cover it in this discussion. As always, remember to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. And be sure to check out our website to find out everything we do here at Turk. So, without further ado, it's my uh, delight to, uh, to, to welcome today's guest on. Victor Assal currently serves as the Chair of Department of Public Administration and as a Professor in the Department of Political Science at State University of New York, Albany. He received his PhD from the University of Maryland, College Park. He is also, along with uh, Carl Ratmeyer, the co-director of the Project on Violent Conflict. Dr. Sal is affiliated with the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, better known to many of you as START, a Department of Homeland Security Center of Excellence. Victor's research focuses on the choice of violence by non-state organizational actors, as well as the cause of political discrimination by states against different groups, such as sexual minorities, women, and ethnic groups. In addition, Victor has done research on the impact of nuclear proliferation and on the pedagogy of simulations, of which we're going to talk about some later on in today's interview. Victor has been involved in research projects funded by the Defence uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency, Defence Threat Reduction Agency, the Department of Homeland Security, the National Science Foundation and the Office of Naval Research. Victor, thanks so much for uh, being on board with today's podcast. Thanks, John, and uh, very much thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's me too, me too. Could you tell our listeners, how did you end up in this field? How did you end up studying what, uh, and researching what you do? So I think uh, there are uh, a couple of different strands here in terms of how I got into this area of research. Uh, one is, is happenstance, uh, but I think uh, there are uh, deeper um, motivations. Uh, one is, is uh, frankly, personal experience. Uh, so my area of research is um, political violence and political discrimination. I think there's a... Uh, important connection between the two. And uh, in terms of discrimination, growing up, um, one of my interesting experiences was, uh, uh, I was at a summer camp once, one of these day day summer camps, um, and I got beat up. And um, a couple of people who were beating me up uh, uh, called me a, uh, a Christ killer. And um, my response to that, which shows you that I was clearly going to grow up uh, to be a professor, was, I'm sorry we didn't get the rest of the apostles. Oh. And they didn't quite understand what I was saying, but they knew I was, you know, not being nice, so they kept beating me up. And that made me really angry. You know, and, and I've had different experiences. So my last name is Arabic, and after 9-11... I got randomly stopped a lot, mm -hmm. you know, and, I, and I've had various kinds of experiences with this. Um, as I like to say, I'm a, uh, I'm a Jewish white guy with a Arabic last name. So people have told me horrible things about Jews because they assume one thing about me. They've told me horrible things about people of color because they've assumed something else. 
parenthetically, my father's from Tunisia, so he, he was a person of color. Um, and they've told me uh, awful things about uh, Jews because my last name is Arabic. So growing up, I had a very strong sense of, of people's attitudes and discrimination having an impact on people's lives. And I spent um, 10 years living in Israel also, and I saw um, the output of a lot of that anger. I lived in Jerusalem, and um, my research for the first period of, of time was really focused on um, discrimination. And um, I remember one time in Jerusalem when it was not pleasant to go outside because a bus was either blowing up on the on the right side of your street or on the left side of your street, and so that had a those personal experiences had a had a big impact on me uh, wanting to understand why uh, organizations and people would move towards wanting to kill civilians uh, for political reasons, which is how I define um, terrorism. Uh, but also, uh, when I got to the University of Maryland, um, I was studying, uh, my, my main focus was political discrimination against uh, ethnic minorities. And um, after 9-11, uh, when the START Center was being put together, uh, John Wilkenfeld, who was part of that process, reached out to me and said, Victor, you have any ideas? And this is where the happenstance part comes in. I says, you know, We've got some decent data on terrorism and terrorism events, but we don't have any real good data on uh, why organizations start killing people in the first place. And to really get at that, we need to see organizations that can be compared that are violent and nonviolent. And um, so that led towards the creation of the Minorities at Risk Organizational Behavior data set. And then about the same time, uh, I went out to lunch. Uh, this was around 2003, my first year as a uh, faculty member. Um, so it was a little bit before uh, this Marab idea, but my first year as a faculty member, I went out to lunch with my colleague, Carl Rethmeyer, um, at a local uh, pizza place. If you're ever in Albany, Savrana's, it's, it's a great pizza place. And we talked about our research, and he did networks. And I was thinking about the fact that there really wasn't any organizational, empirical, organizational, quantitative data out there that people were crunching. And over uh, a couple of slices of pizza, uh, we came up with the idea for the Big Allied and Dangerous data set. And with, with all those personal experiences dating back a long time, what was the... What was the reaction from those around you when you did go into this uh, into this area of research? Was it? Um, I'm, I'm sure people weren't surprised that that you were going into it. But was it was it always going to be through an academic point of view, or did you ever uh, consider involvement in in campaign groups or politics or anything like that at all? Um, so I I did I was at uh, Hebrew University as an undergrad for one year, and I. Uh, ran for office and uh, running for office, uh, I don't know, at, at other universities, but uh, at Hebrew University, the um, parties were totally connected to the national parties. Mm -hmm. And it was such an incredibly unpleasant experience that it was very clear to me that I was not going to actually be involved uh, <laughs> in the political process mm -hmm. and that I'd much rather study it than, than, than do it. I mean, I have 
been involved in certain activities, but my main focus has been the research area. And do you find it uh, that you have to be very conscious that you put those personal experiences uh, to one side when you're researching uh, these topics? Uh, I know from myself, from personal experience, that I I've had to do it, and it might be a bit different from my perspective as a qualitative researcher than a quantitative researcher, but do you feel that you have to consciously do that? So yes, I mean, I think uh, there, there are a couple of things, and, and can we go, John, a little bit into the, into the realm of teaching? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go. Okay, so when it comes to research, uh, we are very, very cognizant that we are collecting empirical data that is based on specific criteria, and where I'm very conscious when I'm doing my research, I may think that the uh, motivations of the organization are good, I may think the motivations of the organization are bad, but what really matters is collecting the empirical data and analyzing it to see what is actually causing what's happening. And I have to keep my own opinions, not just my own experiences, but my own biases out of this so that the data can show us what is really driving things. And it's not always what we think it is, and that's why it's key to not let this bias what you're doing. Um, the part that teaching comes in here is so that my students, uh, certainly my undergraduates, have no idea what my political views are or what my theoretical views are, because I found that if your students know that you, you're a structuralist or a Marxist or a realist or so forth, there's a segment of students that are gonna parrot that back to you and, and I don't want them to parrot it back to me. I want them to decide for themselves what they think makes sense. But um, when it comes to personal experiences that directly relate to what we're teaching about, I've found it can be, and you know, all of us have experiences that we're happy to talk about. Uh, we have experiences that is uncomfortable to talk about, like some of the things I just mentioned, but we're comfortable talking about. And there's stuff we're just not gonna mention. Mm. But I think if there, there are certain things that we're teaching, certainly in this area, if you've had some kind of personal experience with this, um, if, if you're not putting it in the context of trying to convince them of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, but if you're putting in the experience of how this impacts people, I think pedagogically that can be enormously useful. Yeah, and this will show up, actually we, we can get to it now, but this, will show, this shows up in one of the papers that you've put forward for us to have a look at. It's uh, your piece, A Shot Not Taken, teaching about the ethics of uh, political violence. Um, this is a piece that was published in uh, 2012 in International Studies Perspectives. And as always, if you want to, to engage more with uh, the research we talk about in today's podcast, go to our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC. But could, talking about pedagogy and talking about uh, teaching students about political violence and de decision-making within political violence, could you give an oversight of what the, you were aiming to do with, uh, with this paper? Um, on what you, how this has influenced your teaching as well. So uh, one thing I want to note is that this is a paper I co-authored with a graduate student named, well, he's not a graduate student anymore, uh, but uh, a graduate student named Marcus Schultzke, who uh, mixed, did an interesting mix of empirical work and uh, moral philosophy. Uh, moral philosophy, how it was actually applied uh, and this paper stemmed from uh, some experience I was having in my class where a lot of students knew right out the bat who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. You know, this is right and this is wrong. Um, but it became very clear to me that uh, actions 
at least in terms of the way students were seeing things, and frankly, the way I think a lot of people are seeing things, um, if my side does it, it's okay. If your side does it, it's not okay. And this exercise stemmed from uh, Marcus and I trying, to really wanting students to understand the challenges that being in a uh, security environment um, presents and the moral challenges that people face when they're trying to weigh the security of the people involved, um, the civilians around, uh, what is morally right and what is morally wrong about using violence. And a lot of students aren't exposed to this, and even some of the students who are exposed to this have never been said, okay, what's the right thing to do? And one of the things that's very clear uh, with political violence is that a lot of times what the right thing to do uh, gets very gray and very uh, unclear quickly. And so what this paper does is it presents three um, scenarios. Um, and the students are first presented with um, basic ethical perspectives on uh, how we should think about what is the right thing to do from, you know, an Aristotelian, there is a right thing to do, you should know what that is, uh, to uh, more of a, the best for, um, uh, what's, what's best for the, for the most people, um, and, uh, or a Kantian uh, perspective on you should do what, what your job is in terms of what the right thing and depending on what your what your position is and what your responsibilities are um, those things can change and so we present those uh, briefly to the students but then we get into these three scenarios and um, the three scenarios very briefly are uh, the first scenario is uh, you're a commander of a unit uh, that has to find some terrorists in a village in Iraq and you only have a limited number of soldiers and you could call in an airstrike and there's some terrorists in this village you think it's a high priority uh, to make sure that your soldiers are not hurt uh, but how do you go in and find uh, these terrorists um, do you call in an airstrike do you go house to house realizing that if you go house to house you're going to be alerting the terrorists uh, how are you going to deal with the civilians and I've had lots of students going into this who say, yeah, you know, the military, they know what they're doing. And uh, if you have to blow some people up, that's okay. And um, it becomes a lot, lot harder when even fictionally you're put into the seat of the people who have to figure out uh, what the right strategy is. Uh, the second scenario uh, is one where um, there's been a suicide bomber. Uh, it it blows up, uh, the suicide bomber blows up, kills uh, dozens of people. Uh, another suicide bomber is captured. There are hundreds of people milling around. You've captured that suicide bomber. How do you question that suicide bomber? And the question of torture comes up and so forth. Uh, and I found this particular scenario to be truly appalling in terms of some of the students. Uh, I had three students in my class, I remember, who could not agree on anything in the class. I mean, these guys argued and argued and argued. The one thing they did agree on is when this scenario, all three of these uh, people said, well, Professor Rassal, what we should do is we should capture this suicide bomber's family and start shooting children one by one okay. until they tell us what the, uh, if there are any more suicide bombers around. 
And that that created an interesting conversation in the class. Yeah. Uh, the third scenario is one where I do a, a brief history lesson about uh, Argentina under the uh, junta and the terrible things that the uh, um, the military junta was doing and the air force. I relate a story that I'd heard uh, from somebody who'd been a a, uh, a chef at an air force base where for the uh, year that he was there. Uh, every weekend, a plane would take off with prisoners, fly over the ocean, and would come back uh, with nobody on it. None of the prisoners were still on it. They were all thrown into the water. And I would tell the students they are a waiter at a hotel where the um, commander of the Air Force is staying in the top um, floor. Uh, they don't know exactly where, but they're staying in the top floor. And they have explosives, and they can blow it up, but they can't pick the room. They don't know which room the person is staying in. What do they do? And so what this does is it creates a situation where the students themselves had to have to wrestle with the grays of political violence and the grays of what the right thing to do is when you're trying to protect people and when you're trying to resist oppression. Yeah, and... How have the students, like, obviously we have that example of those three students in the case of that's, that scenario in relation to torture uh, and the suicide bomber and the suicide bomber's family, but how have the, the students as a whole react to this? How, do you feel that, it, that they can engage a lot more when you've got these, these different scenarios and when you're putting forward the different uh, philosophical viewpoints here? I had students come back to me years later saying this made a tremendous difference in the way I see things. I, I've had a lot of students tell me this this actually has has quite a big impact. Um, one of the key things is is I think most not most all the students who've not had any kind of experience like this uh, come in almost all of them with an assumption that these things are much simpler um, than it really is in the real world. Uh, and I have had students say, Professor Saul, I can't decide. And my response uh, during running the scenarios, that is not an option. You need to decide what you're going to do because not doing anything is not an option. And they, they get at least some flicker of an insight into the challenges that people on the front lines in both directions have to face and have to deal with. Uh, it makes the whole discussion, for example, of torture uh, much more um, visceral for a lot of the students. Uh, a discussion of does terrorism make sense? Does um, does you know if I if I can kill the commander of the air force is it okay if I kill a bunch of civilians also? That's uh, one thing to discuss if we're discussing what somebody else is doing. Um, it makes it much more real, and it also makes it so that they're the one who has to decide. Basically, what it does is they have to decide they're not looking at somebody else and judging somebody else they're doing it yeah. and so by them doing it they're the ones who have to uh judge themselves and that makes it uh very powerful oh it it is definitely hugely powerful and we're talking about here you're putting these scenarios forward to your uh, to your class of poli-sci international relations students. But you also, within the article yourself and Marcus, talk about uh, the, the teaching of ethics uh, within uh, the military, within military training. What, what did you find, how did you find 
that this has been thought, if at all, um, and was it different from uh, uh, from country to country? So that's interesting. So that actually ended up being what Marcus's dissertation was about. Mm. Uh, so he'd be a good person for you to talk to on Definitely. the podcast at Definitely. some point. Uh, but what he found, uh, and in my own experience, is uh, there's huge differences in how militaries uh, do ethical training. So there's some militaries that, uh, that just don't do it. Uh, and there's some militaries that, that it's, it's a fundamental part of uh, basic training. Um, and so it, it has an impact. And what Marcus's research looked at was um, he looked at the US, the UK, and Israel, how they did training, and then he interviewed soldiers for how they applied it and whether the training mattered. Okay. Uh, and so there's there's actually a lot to be talked about in that area, but uh, I'm doing the pedagogy stuff. I'll defer to the real empirical research uh, to Marcus. Yeah, no, it's, I, I found it a... <clears throat> It's a much different article than any of the rest of our interviewees have, have put forward by putting forward this, this, um, this analysis of how we, of our pedagogy, but also linking it up with that moral philosophy, linking it up with uh, virtue ethics, with Kantianism, with uh, consequentialism, utilitarianism. It's, uh, it's something that I would really encourage our listeners uh, to, to read. And it, it definitely got me thinking as well. And, it's this, you can apply it not just to these cases within, um, within political violence, but you can see it applied elsewhere as well, um, within political decision-making uh, as a whole and external from, uh, from politics as well. But let's take a step back. Wait, we just, just one thing, John. So, yeah. so I completely agree with you. Uh, and I would like to note, if anybody's interested in, in any of this pedagogy stuff and just wants to shoot me an email, I have spent uh, a lot of time on Skype with people running through how to do this, and I'd be happy to do it. Well, that's brilliant. Oh, I, I'm sure you'll get be getting plenty of emails from our listeners now about this. But uh, no, it's 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 definitely something worthwhile uh, thinking about and, and engaging with as a whole. But let's take a step back because we started off talking about how you got into, into this uh, area of research yourself, and you're talking about your own uh, personal experiences there. But you were also obviously engaging with the literature um, uh on on terrorism and the causes of terrorism and that the causes of terrorism is is the first piece that you put forward as influencing you it's the piece by martha crenshaw from way back in 1981 how was it that this influenced you and why do you why do you think that it, it remains influential today um i think it well first of all martha crenshaw is really in in my view one of the key founders of um, the current era of terrorism research. Hmm. Um, she really established uh, some fundamental questions uh, and perspectives on how we think about terrorism, um, what are the causes of terrorism, uh, how do we, things we need to differentiate. And I haven't always agreed with uh, Martha's perspective, but it really is uh, a fundamental starting point. And the 1981 article identifies, uh, one of the most important things it does is it identifies key things that the research at that point, and really for a long time afterwards, uh, was, was simply missing. And so uh, Martha in this article says, 
Um, hey guys, uh, no empirics, uh, no real analysis, uh, no serious uh, comparative research is extant. And she's actually more or less correct on that. And she's saying we need to do serious empirical uh, analysis and data collection and qualitative and quantitative research. And so I think this is an article um, that really lays out what's missing in the field and what was needed in the field. And in some ways is still needed for a lot of important questions uh, for what we need to, to be thinking about. And I think uh, Martha makes some important, uh, she's got a very uh, important discussion on what terrorism is um, and how we're thinking about it. Uh, I think she makes an important distinction between what she calls preconditions and precipitants. So those things that are there that don't necessarily make it happen, but they've got to be there for it to happen. And the precipitants are the things that directly are related to events and causes. I think that's uh, an important distinction um, that she's making there. Uh, and then I also think that um, she highlights something that a lot of people uh, both before her and after her have ignored. Uh, and this is central, of course, to my work, which is the importance of grievance, the importance of subgroups that are feeling like um, they're getting crapped on, uh, as well as the connection between that grievance and the lack of opportunity for political participation. So very early on, she's one of these people who's identifying that connection between grievance and um, lack of uh, political opportunity structure uh, in, in an important way. And so it's it's a foundational piece. Yeah, and would you yeah. would you still have your all your students reading it now? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I think like you 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 won't be surprised. You're not the only one who who's put this piece piece forward. And even uh, there have been other pieces by Martha that that has been put forward. And largely all our all our interviewees have been in agreement with you that she is one of the she is one of the people who have who've set the track for where where we've moved and and laid out the issues that we have to be be dealing with and uh yeah you're right some of the issues are still there that she raises back uh back gee 37 years ago now it's um yeah making it's, me feel old john making me feel old as well now looking at that but uh yeah it's it's a hugely influential piece not just for yourself but for for others as well and it it can influence uh people no matter their approach to to these issues as well um and it's it it move, you can see you can definitely see that uh, influencing your research, which we're going to get onto in a few minutes' time. But the next piece that you put forward um, was Mark Jurgensmeyer's uh, book, "Terror in the Mind of God: The Global Rise of Religious Violence." Now this looks at the power that ideology uh, plays. It has uh, has more more of a focus um, more of a focus there uh, in that regard. What was it, uh, what, what did you really take from this book and how did it influence you? So I think Jurgens Meyer really focuses on one key element that I think has a lot of power. And that's how ideology, and his focus is religious ideology, but I, I take this um, perspective and this focus further than just religious ideology, which is that how we see the world can impact 
what we're going to do in the world and what we see as moral or immoral in that world, what we see as right and wrong. And he makes a very powerful uh, case, um, both in his article and his book, that the ideologies that tell us uh, what is right and what is wrong can justify certain acts that if we're not looking through that lens, um, really doesn't, doesn't match. And so that has a lot of uh, a lot of power, and it certainly informed uh, when we were thinking about uh, what variables to collect and so forth. Um, Jurgen Meyer's uh, article uh, and book uh, very much informed uh, thinking about what how we should think about these um, these questions. And I think one of the other key uh, pieces here is this sense of God saying, you know, there are good guys and there are bad guys, and in the good guys and the bad guys, the bad guys aren't necessarily all that human. Mm. And I think that that component is uh, is really key. This this ability of um, or this dynamic of othering, um, to me, really sheds very, very important light on how we uh, should think about how religion can see can demonize others. Yeah, it's it's something that you can you can see come through uh, in a, in a lot of the research that you put forward uh, yourself for for uh, for this piece. A, a lot of your own research, you can see it in the the nature of the beast. The piece that you did with Carl, where you're looking at the role of audience othering capabilities, but you can also see it as well uh, in the piece gender ideologies and forms of contentious mobilization in the Middle East, where you're you're not just looking at say the central religious ideology, but you're looking at elements of the ideology especially here the role that um that uh, the role that gender plays in these ideologies and it it's it's proven to be very powerful and can give us some great insights when you look at your research mark's research and others as well and the the final piece that you um that you put forward as as influencing you is the piece by uh, ted gurr uh, people versus states which looks at ethnicity and discrimination and violence and um, what was it or what was it about this what did this um this piece give that others haven't for you so one thing I should note to start with is that uh, Ted Gurr was actually uh, my uh, dissertation co-chair. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So, I never knew that, actually. Yeah, I got my PhD at the University of Maryland uh, with uh, Ted Gurr and Mark Lischbach being my co-chairs. And um, so Gurr has a lot of influence on me. Unfortunately, uh, Ted just passed away uh, recently, um, but... Ted was somebody who I think made a tremendous contribution to the field of political violence. And I think um, what Ted's work and specifically uh, People versus States really does is it makes a very, very compelling case for the power that political discrimination has on moving people towards violence. It, it was central to the tie between the two areas of research uh, that I focus on, 
and how they're tied together. And not only did uh, Ted make this argument, but he collected data which um, supported this argument. Um, and this idea that if you discriminate people, so basically in some ways, uh, he, his, his argument about grievance and violence um, is connected to what we were mentioning in Crenshaw's work, mm -hmm. is that people who are going to be blowing up other people for political reasons, feeling like they're being discriminated against, feeling like the state is out to get them is a key component. And I think that this is a, and there are people who push back on this. I mean, uh, Fearon and Leighton and others have said, no, not true. But again and again, and, and not just using uh, TED's data, but now using a variety of different data sets, people have found and again and again that if you control for discrimination, you are showing evidence, you are gonna find that um, levels of discrimination and oppression are directly connecting to people blowing stuff up. And I think this is a fundamental part of our understanding of political violence and terrorism. Hugely, hugely. And it, the, the influence that, that Ted's research has had, is, it's huge to our area. It's um, both his, his, own re, his own research and the research he's done with others. Um, and he'll be, he'll be greatly missed. And he, he, he has had a huge impact, and clearly uh, on your career, but on, on the careers of others as well. So uh, our condolences to, to, uh, to his family uh, at this yeah. time. Um, the, this, we'll move on now to your first piece. I've mentioned it already. It's, uh, it's your piece with Carl uh, Rethmeyer, who you, you've uh, researched extensively with. Uh, it, it, you've, your, your collaboration has come a long way since that 2003 uh, pizza meeting anyway. So it's, um, yes. it's, uh, it's, it's, you've had some, some excellent research together. The one that you've picked um, here is the nature of the beast, organizational structures, and the lethality of terrorist attacks. What were what what's this piece about? What's it? Uh, what was it aiming to do? Um, and what were the key findings from it? So when when I was first getting into the to the realm of um, terrorism uh, as a as a dependent variable, thinking about it from a quantitative perspective, uh, what was amazing to me was that there really wasn't any data sets out there that. Um, were put into a spreadsheet format that you were able to crunch. Um, there were a couple, but but really not not a lot, and um, not a lot of useful stuff. And and I, I found that frustrating because I, it it seemed to me that this was a key element of terrorism research was we had to understand why certain organizations turned out to be so much more lethal than others. Um, I'm assuming most of your listeners know, but the majority of terrorist organizations don't kill anybody because they're not very good at it, right? Yeah. Uh, they don't last very long. They blow themselves up. They just aren't very good at killing people. And there's a certain segment of terrorist organizations that slaughter thousands. And so um, there's some really useful qualitative research on this. But in terms of a quantitative perspective of looking at why some organizations are so uh, deadly, uh, at the time that Carl and I were talking over pizza, and by the way, we still go to Sovranas on a regular basis, um, there really wasn't anything out there. And so we decided to go ahead and collect 
uh, the information. And and really what, what Carl uh, brought to the table that I had not been thinking about, but was really the key insight that I think was important for the Big Island and Dangerous, um, which, which I really like the acronym, the BAD data set, mm-hmm. is um, that he brought social network analysis and the impact that alliances can have on organizational behavior, which is really something I had not been thinking about, but that was his central uh, perspective. Um, he's a he's a social network analyst guy, and so uh, and most and all of his other work is not related to terrorism. All of his other work is really related to public management and how um, organizations and governments, how uh, social networks impact that. And so what we wanted to look at in this paper was what were the organizational factors uh, and uh, um, contextual factors and alliances and how did they impact uh, which organizations uh, were most lethal. And what we found was that um, ideology mattered is, you know, not surprisingly from from Jurgens Meyer, uh, that certain elements of power, so capability, uh, has having a large impact. So uh, an organization that's large, an organization that controls territory, um, an organization that um, is strong, basically, is killing more people. Uh, but one of the things that uh, has a huge impact, and I have to thank Carl for really uh, pushing this idea, is alliances. Having friends makes a difference. And the more friends you have, if you're a terrorist organization, the more people you're going to have the ability to kill because friends means knowledge, friends means capability, friends means resources. And so um, the first paper that we did with this data really underlines the importance of various factors, but the importance of alliances in driving uh, why certain organizations are so much more lethal than others. And- while they're the things that are important predictors, you, it, the data was uh, showing that uh, three things that some might presume to be important predictors but aren't uh, were state sponsorship, organizational age, and host country characteristics. Were you surprised by this when you when you analyzed the data? So, uh, yes. I mean, uh, a lot of the literature talks about actually primarily focuses on host country characteristics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as somebody who thinks that uh, uh, if a country is treating people badly, it's going to have more terrorism, and if a country's this and a country's that, um, I was surprised by that. Um, organizational age didn't surprise me so much, although it did contradict some of the uh, statements in the literature. What did surprise me until I thought about it was state sponsorship, because uh, there's some really uh, compelling arguments that have been made why if an organization is getting state sponsorship, it's getting resources, it's getting money, it's getting knowledge, why wouldn't it um, be better at, um, at killing people? But when we saw these results, uh, we started to think about it. And what occurred to me is um, state sponsorship is a plus and a minus. And it's a plus because, yes, it gets you resources, but it's a minus because it means you have somebody that is... Uh, that you're beholden to, to a certain extent. And for states, uh, basically they can see terrorist organizations as something that they're using to sting other countries. Mm 
But you don't want to sting people too much. Otherwise, they might get violent and invade your country. Like, oh, let's say uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan. And so I think there's that restraining side of things uh, there. And I think that's what's probably explaining um, the the alliance, sorry, the the state sponsorship thing. And that also brings up, um, if I could just expand a little bit on the alliances. So um, one of the stories I think best illustrates the power of alliances is uh, in the early 70s, some Japanese tourists got off an airplane uh, at uh, Ben-Gurion Airport uh, in Israel, and they uh, took out guns and they inflicted, I think, something around 100 plus casualties. It was a, it was a huge uh, attack. And um, I remember the attack, and I went back and I checked uh, the newspaper articles to remember if what I was remembering was correct. And the Israelis were stunned because, you know, they had every reason to think that the Palestinians hated them. They're, they're occupying uh, the West Bank and every single reason to think about why Europeans might hate them. The Holocaust was only 30 years beforehand. But the Japanese, I mean, what the hell's going on here? And it, it turns out that what was going on was the Japanese Red Army, I'm not making this up, in the late 60s did an efficiency assessment report sure. of their terrorist activities. And they found out that they were crappy terrorists. And so they reached out to the PFLP to get training. And uh, the PFLP invited them to a terrorist summer training camp in Lebanon. They were trained, but their payoff for being trained was doing an attack against the Israelis. And that's a fairly powerful, in my view, uh, story that illustrates uh, the value of having these kind of relationships uh, and the power of alliances. So when we're looking at this connectedness and when we're looking at these alliances, are you, when yourself and Carl were coding this, how were you defining alliances? Was it purely those organizations who would have been in, had operational alliances or, or did they have to have an operation together or sponsored by, how, how, did, you, how did you define this? Well, I mean, this is one of those things that highlights um, the joys, quote unquote, of empirical data collection. Yeah. Uh, because when we first started collecting the data, we had about 12 different measures for different kinds of um, alliances. And we boiled those down to two or three because there just simply isn't that much data available on a yearly basis. But what we're defining here as an alliance is not, not necessarily operational support, but we have clear evidence that these are two organizations that are either stating their allies or giving each other some kind of material or political support uh, that is more than a one-off. And that's the way we're coding it. So it it doesn't have to necessarily be operational. It could be political. It could be resources. But some evidence that there's some kind of positive alliance connection between these organizations. Okay. Uh, Before we move on from this article, you started off by talking about how uh, the majority of uh, terrorist groups were crappy and they were uh, unable to to be successful or or, or didn't kill that many. Just to illustrate this, in your piece, uh, you say that of the 395 clearly identified terrorist organizations operating between 1998 and 2005, only 68 had killed 10 or more and only 28 of those had killed more than 100. So it, it just shows that 
of the all those terrorist groups out there, we might think of them their lethality, but it's it's only a, a small percentage who really are. The final piece that we want to that that you identified for for today's podcast is uh, gender ideologies and forms of contentious mobilization in the Middle East. Uh, this was done with a, with a number of co-authors um, of yours. It's I, again, as as with all your pieces, I find it really, really interesting, and it's a it's quite a different perspective than a lot of uh, similar research would take. So, what was the the thinking behind this? And again, what did you what did you find? So, um, the piece this piece is really uh, a key piece, and I think the writing and the data that's um, that's been using the minorities at risk organizational behavior data set, and what distinguishes this data set is. A, it's the organizational level. B, it's similar ethno-political organizations that claim to represent uh, ethno-political groups in the Middle East who are minorities, as identified by the Minorities at Risk uh, data set. Um, but it, it collects data on organizations that are violent, organizations that are not violent, organizations that uh, are using violence that stop using violence, organizations that are um, not using violence that start using violence. And so what it allows us to do uh, in a way that is fairly rare currently in the literature is to compare similar organizations that are violent and not violent and to see what are the factors that make them more likely to, to choose different kinds of uh, contentious choices. And uh, in addition, uh, what this particular paper focuses on, there are a couple of, I think, uh, innovative things. He says patting himself on the <laughs> back. Uh, there are a couple of innovative things in this paper. Uh, one innovative thing is that we tend, to, we tend to separate out protest from blowing people up. And we're studying why are people doing protest, sorry, why are organizations doing protest, why are organizations doing violence. But, but really... Uh, um, when organizations are thinking about this stuff, they have a choice. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, it's, it's like going to a buffet. Um, you could just focus on uh, certain kinds of dairy food, or you could focus on certain kinds of uh, meat food, but you could also have meat and dairy together on the same plate. And uh, in the literature, we often focus either on meat or on dairy, and what we do in this paper is we look at, are they doing traditional politics? And if they're not doing traditional politics, are they doing violence? Are they doing um, protest? Or are they putting both violence and protest on the same plate in the same year? And so we're able to look at, uh, across the board, using a multinomial um, logit, uh, logistical analysis for the factors that make these organizations pick different um, components. And, and that's, I think that's, that's pretty interesting uh, in my perspective. The other component, which uh, I'm happy to say uh, recently there's been a lot more work in this area, is what is the impact of um, violence in terms of um, ideology and beyond the ideology that a lot of People. So people, I mean, there's huge amounts of research on religious ideology, leftist ideology, uh, rightist ideology. 
but there's almost no research on gendered ideology. And so what this paper does is it says, does an organization that says that women should be treated like, um, should, be, should be equal, does that have an impact on how that organization behaves? And what we're finding in this um, article is that, uh, oh boy, it has an impact. And so what we're seeing here is that uh, organizations that have a gender-inclusive ideology are um, more likely to do uh, traditional politics, more likely to do protest, but are less likely to do either a mixed strategy or a um, or a, uh, just a violence-only strategy. The other uh, ideology component that I found, and and I'd be really interested to hear uh, what what you think about this. But I found uh, really interesting here is the analysis on religious ideology. So the majority of, of research on religious ideology focuses on how religious ideology makes organizations more lethal. But what this paper does, which not a lot of other papers have done, is it looks at does religious ideology have an impact on that choice of violence in the first place, which most literature assumes that it does, and what we're seeing here is that actually religious ideology seems to be having somewhat of an impact on um, traditional politics, but it, in, a, in a very small impact on a mixed strategy, but it's not statistically significant when it comes to violence only. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, really interesting, uh, in my mind, a really interesting uh, finding uh, more research that we've done since then, I'll just mention when we looked at starting to use violence and then starting to kill civilians, we have a paper that, that looks at this and what we find is that um, religious ideology has an impact on killing civilians, but it does not have an impact on starting to kill people in the first place. But back to this paper, uh, I think another uh, part of what's interesting here is the provision of social services by organizations uh, within the context of ethno-political organizations in the Middle East, actually makes organizations more likely to use violence, which is surprising in some ways, but if you want to replace the state, is uh, not surprising at all. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it 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 challenges you a lot of these findings, especially that that finding on the on religious uh, lethality and the choice of, of violence in the first place. It, uh, it your research has always uh, challenged what you're your perception your perception might be it also you can see this in your in your pedagogical pedagogical piece um you're there to challenge your your students as well and it's um it's all about going back to what we discussed at the beginning it's putting your perception putting your beliefs to one side and seeing what what the the data is telling you as well it's um how do you feel then that these these findings can be implemented or or do you how, how do you feel it should uh, affect policy, both political and um, and uh, counterterrorism, and in in relation to the to the ethics piece, in relation to uh, to military uh, policy as well? So, uh, from the ethics piece, I think giving people ethics training, uh, and I'm not saying you need to give them you know semesters and semesters, but mm. certainly for people who are going to be involved in political violence, I think. Uh, ethics training is extraordinarily important. Uh, 
and establishing criteria for what is right or wrong. You want people going into uh, violence knowing this and not having to figure it out uh, just case by case, but having something to fall back on if you want them not to be doing horrendous things. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the other findings, so I think that um, the Marab piece and the bad piece are uh, present the importance of different stages of analysis. Uh, the bad article shows that organizations that have already chosen violence, religious ideologies having a big impact on them being more violent. But the Marab piece is showing us that we shouldn't assume that religious ideology is going to make people violent in the first place. And I think from a policy perspective, this is really important because we've got a heck of a lot of politicians out there who are going on and on about how certain religions are making people, um, uh, going to make people more violent and we should be suspicious of them. And I think that gets back to one of the findings we haven't talked about yet um, in the Marab piece, but this is very reflective of a lot of Ted Gurr's work. Treating people badly because of who they are is exactly what terrorist organizations want and is exactly the wrong policy. Target the people who are blowing stuff up, but don't treat people badly just because of what their last name is or what they look like because you are inviting them to be angry and inviting people to be angry is not a good idea. Yeah. No, completely, completely. And it is it, it really... It really is an important message uh, to give. It's um, it's this. It's it, going back to the 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 first piece, the the piece with Carl. It's it's it goes back to that issue of, of othering as well and targeting uh, someone because of because they're they're another as well. It's just it is something hugely important that we have to bear in mind all the time. Actually, one point that we haven't dealt with. Um, that was touched on in, I think it was in the Mara piece, is the role of the diaspora community. What has your data shown uh, that in re what role, what effect does the support of a diaspora community have in relation to not just lethality, but in involvement in uh, contention? So when it comes to diaspora, um, it's interesting in that diaspora support makes organizations less likely to be involved in traditional politics and significantly more likely to be blowing stuff up. Mm. Uh, and this actually makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I went to Tufts uh, University in Boston uh, in the 80s and I remember going into Irish bars and I remember seeing Irish Americans being ecstatic about seeing Northern Ireland and the IRA blowing people up. Uh, and. It, it occurred to me when I, when, when I got this finding that that is directly correlated here because if you're getting diaspora support, your supporters are enjoy inflicting violence on the people they see as oppressors, but they pay no cost yeah. because they're in America and they're not in Derry. And so um, it's this, uh, it's, it, it has a plus for the organization in that they're getting this kind of support. But it also motivates the organizations to do stuff that this kind of diaspora support wants. And this diaspora support uh, has an interest in violence uh, without paying the cost of violence in a way that local supporters actually have to pay the cost. Yeah, yeah and you can have the, the glorification of the diaspora of what it, uh, 
of what it actually means and what this represents rather than having the day-to-day -day, uh, reality of what involvement in, uh, in that form of violence uh, can have on the people where I use the example of Derry there, the people of Derry, people of Belfast, people of Jerusalem, people of Raqqa, wherever. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to, to sit back in that bar uh, hundreds of thousands of miles away and, and be able to, to glorify it all. But, uh, Victor, we have nearly taken an hour of your time here, but before we, uh, before we finish up, what's, what's next for you? What's, uh, where's your research taking you now? So Carl and I have been working over the last eight years to collect a new big allied and dangerous uh, data set, uh, BAD2, which is a yearly data set. Okay. Um, and we've now sent out some papers from 98 to 2012 using the insurgent variable because that's fewer organizations. But uh, we're going to be starting in the summer sending out uh, analyses of all sorts of different things using yearly data for about 550 organizations. Um, and really what I'm going to be focusing on is, is taking that data, which we've spent an enormous amount of time, and thank you to START and thank you to NSF and thank you to um, DITRA for, for supporting this, this data collection. Um, but it's going to shed some light because now it's not just going to be organizational data, but it's going to be yearly organizational data so we can track changes and really see how things develop. Well, that sounds brilliant. It sounds, it sounds great. I look forward to, to reading it. I look forward to seeing what, uh, what your findings are. The way I well, finish... Well, let me know if you want to write a paper. Oh, always. I'll, 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 uh, once we stop uh, recording this, I'll, I'll, I'll throw some ideas at you now. We'll, uh, the way I finish up most of these interviews as well is it goes back to, um, to a piece that, that Mark Sageman wrote a, a while back on on whether there's a stagnation in terrorism research. And I, I would like to ask the interviewees uh, how they feel the state of terrorism research is at the moment. So what's your perception? How do you feel it is? What's the health of terrorism research? It was the best of times. It was the worst of, <laughs> sorry, uh, I, I can't resist. Um, I think terrorism research compared to where it was 20 years ago is, has made phenomenal uh, steps forward. Tremendous steps forward across a wide array of researchers and scholars uh, and data and uh, publications and such. I think uh, we're getting to that point where, um, you know, there, there need to be some new ideas, but I, I still think we're going in a fairly powerful direction. I think one of the real challenges is getting the resources from governments and other organizations to keep funding us for some of the key works that, that need to be, uh, and the key research efforts. I think that's one of the major challenges. But I think we're going in a decent direction and, and a much better rate and a much more solid rate, uh, and I'm gonna disagree with Sageman here, uh, than we were uh, years ago. Okay, yeah, and, that, and that's been the consensus from, uh, from pretty much all of the interviewees uh, today. So, Victor, Again, thank you so much for uh, spending your time. I'm actually hungry after this interview, after the talk of pizza and dairy and meat and everything. I'm going to have to go to that buffet myself now. But thank you, thank you so much for, for spending your time. As, as you. always, uh, if anyone wants to look more in-depth at any of the research that was discussed today, be sure to go to the Talking Terror website. That's uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C and follow the links for the Talking Terror project. Uh, be sure to tune in next week where I'll be 
talking to Dr. Michael Boyle from LaSalle University in Philadelphia. And um, there's a lot more to come after Mike then. Okay, thanks very much and talk to you all soon.